and welcome back to Esbar a Bookish Podcast. I'm Elle. And I'm Reggie. And we're joined today by Jamie Zachariah, who is an author with her book coming out later this year. Um, so welcome to the show, Jamie. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolute pleasure. And today we're doing something a bit different. Rather than focusing on a book, we're going to be looking at a topic. I'm really excited for this one. It is lesbian vampires. So to start us off then, Jamie, why did you pick this topic? Oh, yeah, I mean, just the name alone is intriguing, right? Lesbian vampires. But um, I'm a queer woman and I am a super horror fan. And um, there is such a distinct feel about the lesbian vampire genre through literature, through film. And it's very representative of a lot of society's feelings and I mean it's just cool right I like lesbians and I like vampires and you know there's been some really great pieces of literature that fall into this very niche genre that are worth reading absolutely um and it is it's quite a popular topic as well um and like you said it's very reflective of society I know a couple of years ago I was able to go to the Berlin Fright Girl Festival, like virtual version. And there was a talk there on lesbian vampires throughout literature and films, especially around the time of the 70s, the 80s, when a lot of that kind of, the fear of women's sexuality. Yeah. Um, And vampires have always been queer as well. you know, the, like looking at Dracula and looking at Anne Rice's books, but it tends to be more male vampires. Um, so are they seen as they're the most popular ones? But what would you recommend as les- for lesbian vampires, whether it's books or the films, or are there any like standout ones? Yeah. That you think well, I mean, I would I would be remiss if I didn't start with Carmilla, right? Because mm-hmm. Carmilla is. It predates Dracula. I think a lot of people don't know that. So before Dracula even came out, there was this short story. Well, it's more of a novella by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, released in 1872, called Carmilla. And it's a tale of a young woman who becomes enthralled by another young woman who may or may not be human. Um, Spoiler alert, she's a vampire. Um, And it is, it's a beautifully written piece of work. If you like Dracula, you're going to like Carmilla. If you like Gothic literature, you're going to like it. And if you do, you've probably already heard of it, and I'm speaking to the choir. Um, But what I love about it is not only is it a wonderful read in its own right, but that it really was the first long-form vampire tale as we know them, even before Dracula. And the fact that the main character's vampirism is so wrapped up in her lesbianism uh, is a a message that has... I think what made it such a popular story and why it's continued to be adapted and and built upon to this day. So anyone who's looking to get into this, you know, genre, you have to start there and you will not be disappointed. Yeah, absolutely. And the both well, the the two girls in it are like the main girl is a teenager at the time when it's the carriage crashes outside. I don't know why that scene always sticks with me, the carriage yeah. crashing and then coming in. Um and it's almost remind when I because I listened to it first on the podcast and then it reminded me a little bit of like let the right one in the way it's that protector character with the female vampire watching over her and doing what he has to, to so she can sustain herself. And it's quite interesting that there's always this kind of there's lesbian vampires who tend to have the male helpers alongside them and it's normally like a father figure role rather than a like a lover role as well yeah that is true there are a lot of instances i mean you look at dracula's daughter which came out in the 30s meant to be a sequel to dracula although it's not based on any literature right and then you have dracula's daughter the countess and she has um you know, her sidekick man who is basically her right-hand man. He does what she needs to do. He goes and gets her victims. Um, but it's not r- romantic at all. And I think that's a good point. It's. I, I also think it's it's safe to say that, 
you know, talking about like the 1800s and even up into the 1930s and even beyond, writing or watching lesbians, that was not going to happen. Like we didn't outwardly yeah. talk about gay people, especially not if there's any positive connotations to it. So it had to be very um, subtle. So I think one of the many ways they included this subtlety was having a male character that was very close to this female vampire character, however, is not romantic because if it was a straight character, it probably would be. Like you said, obviously started with Camilla, but took off a lot in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. Are there any of the, the films there that you, that you particularly like that stand out as well from like that kind of later time period? Yeah, the 70s and 80s were, were great. I think we all know like the, um, the Hammer horror films and, and the horror films like that, that were just like so, I want to say beautifully rich, because when I picture them, I picture like bright scarlets and bright colors and like this production value is very much like a stage and very, very sexual, which I think definitely coincides with the sexual revolution that was happening for women, but also for, for queer people at the same time. Um, yeah. And that's why I think a lot of those films, a lot of them really could be considered softcore porn, if we're being honest. Um, I'm not saying they're not good watches, um, but a lot of them fall into some pretty distinct uh, patterns that are, are geared toward the male gaze. Mm -hmm. If there's one that particularly stands out to me, it would be The, the Blood Splattered Bride, um, because that one is a, a take of Carmilla, like many of them are. A, you know, very variably based on it, not exactly. But in this one, things go a little differently. It doesn't follow the same pattern as the others. And um, I always found that really interesting about that film. I don't want to give too much away. But out of all of them, that's the one that I kind of like the most. Yeah. One that I like quite a bit is that, oh man, the name is escaping me right now. The one Belgian vampire horror that I will probably have to Google as I'm speaking about it, but it was very, it was not a typical, um, like, in-your-face, bloody vampire-type story. It was very slow, and if you weren't mm -hmm. expecting it to be this slow build, very gothic romance style, I can see how it would fall flat for that audience, but it was, um, I'm Googling it right now. It was really interesting. I think that was one of the first lesbian vampire films that I've ever seen. And I'm blanking on its name. Daughters of Darkness. That's it. Ah, uh, yeah. That's classic. That's, yes. That one was probably the first lesbian vampire film that I had seen, but... I remember when I showed it to my partner, they got particularly bored with it just because it was slow. It's not bombastic in any way. It's very, like you said, it could go into that softcore porn territory. Yeah, and I think that's, if you, if you if we look at original vampire literature, right? Like Carmilla or Dracula, um, even Nosferatu as it was a kind of remake of Dracula. It is very gothic and slow. Horror at that time was not about shock factor and blood and gore the way a lot of modern horror is, although I think it's safe to say that our horror now is tending to go back. But a lot of the vampire genre really is, at its core, slow burn. Dracula is like, how long do we, you know, we got to listen to Jonathan harp on about <laughs> missing home. I mean, so... I think that those elements are what make particularly good films even now. And I think as you watch films throughout the eras, it, it reflects what is popular in the horror films or in the horror literature at that time as a horror itself entertainment value, but also as how society is viewing these topics. But I, I think it is safe to say, or at least I think that the really core, a core good vampire film is slow burn, I think. I would agree with that, because if you play all of your cards too quickly with any kind of vampire story, you just, you miss that dread, and you miss the way people interact with this otherworldly undead creature, and how that can kind of inform their decisions later on. And if you come right out, and it's like, hey, this is a vampire, 
look at it. it you have to have a very specific angle with your storytelling like in the hunger where um the whole longevity and that eternal life piece is important to the entire story um and also you have to have david bowie die very early on so you can focus on the two female characters but hey that's that is neither here nor there <laughs> that is a great film also just everyone should watch that film that's great um, but that's so true. And I think a lot of it is also psychological and a lot of what we like about vampire fiction and why I think it is so intrinsically connected to queerness is the psychological aspect of it, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of it is people second guessing themselves and others. And that's what we do as a queer community. And that's what people have been doing to us as the queer community trying to get in our heads, trying to get in our own heads, trying to determine, are we different? Is different okay? Is this bad? And it's it's really that psychological turmoil that I think is what a lot of people in the queer community also identify with when it comes to vampire films. Yeah, and vampires have always been that kind of sexualized other. Um, and it's always been a popular thing to reclaim in a sense. Um, which obviously plays into it as well, but as like, it's always represented that fear of sexuality as well as a kind of sexuality that you just can't stay away from in a different way to say werewolves or zombies even. Mm -hmm. They're all like different, they're all, you know, there's the argument, they're all a fear of death in one form or another, it's just how that death mm -hmm. is stupid, but yeah, and I definitely think recent years as well, there's been a huge uptake in the books that are specifically reclaiming the stories of Dracula and these female characters that were on the sidelines in the original books. Yeah, there's one book that I would love to give a shout out to that that does just what you said. Um, and it's called A Dowry of Blood by S.T. Gibson, and it came out recently, 2021. And um, I guess it's short enough to be considered a novella as well, maybe. I, I'm not sure what the exact uh, page limits are for that. But I loved this book because it's the story of Dracula and Dracula's brides. But instead of just being three beautiful women that you kind of see sometimes in the background, it is three people. And I say people because one is not, in fact, a woman, because everyone in this book is polyamorous and queer, and it's amazing. And it's their stories. And not just their stories as vampires, but also a very human stories of abuse, of abusive relationships, of love and different types of love. And there's just a lot of really human, modern, heartfelt emotion in what could be looked at as just a reimagining of Dracula, but it's so much more than that. And I think that's really important because it really brings to the forefront what we already knew about Dracula is that it's super queer. Yeah, and there's, um... Reluctant Immortals as well, which is another recent one. Um, I've got a diary of blood on my to read list, but Reluctant Immortals I finished reading and it's Lucy. Um, but she's with Bertha from Jane Eyre and it's portraying Rochester and Dracula as abusers. Mm -hmm. um, Lucy in it is Bertha who has the explicit queer relationship, but that kind of the way they interact with each other, the way they love each other even, and the kind of the 60s setting as well for that opens up to the queer, uh, the sexual revolution. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of like different ways that that showing, again, the abusive aspect of it, which mm -hmm. is another interesting trend in the vampires where I think a lot of people identify in some earlier vampire, like what young adult vampire fiction, hang on, these, this isn't romantic. This is creepy. Why is he just sitting in her room watching her sleep? <laughs> That's what I thought too. It was very creepy. And you um, know what? A lot of those themes are still present in, in queer vampire fiction. I've read, I'm, I'm not a huge expert on a lot of the modern explosion of like paranormal um, and urban fantasy romance. I love that it's all happening, but I haven't been able to keep up. But I have read a few and some of them have those same kind of abusive tendencies where the vampires controlling physically or emotionally or mentally or financially and all of the above. And um, which is a good point to make that just because you're in a queer relationship doesn't mean it can't be an abusive one. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I will say that it's good that we are seeing this reflected even within YA, because there has been historically that lack of knowledge across a queer, straight, what have you, of those youthful relationships not understanding that this is an abusive tactic. Mm -hmm. So in that regard, if it's more accessible and also queer friendly, then that kind of gives more kids ammunition to understand what's happening to them. And yeah, and that's something that has been severely lacking, I would say, up until fairly recently. But also it could be just that parents are like, I accept you for being gay, but then not understanding all of the baggage that comes with it in terms of not being able to navigate that abusive relationship in the same way, because it might be just displaying itself differently than a straight one. That's such a poignant point and something I think that's really important. To, to, I'm glad you brought that up because it, it's true. We have, here's what an abusive relationship looks like, but like most things in life, nothing can be defined that easily. And entertainment, especially literature and movies, it helps us see those different facets of life and sometimes recognize some of those patterns in our own lives. Yeah. And I believe, oh, I can't remember if, if this is across the UK or just in England, but the coercive control definition, it might be England only, as a form of abuse and a way to like red flag this relationship that's something that is fairly recent and hadn't been acknowledged as being abusive until um, certain, unfortunately, certain incidents had happened. And a lot of them were like, it was brought forward by a lot of like high profile cases and normally laws like that is what England and Wales. So I, I think it's, I think it's Wales as well. I remember. Did you yeah. meet yourself there? There we go. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure it is England and Wales. I remember hearing a lot about it when it was coming out, but not a lot since. But obviously, most laws, it's like that. So, um, yeah, they have made a lot of strides recently to look at abuse in different forms of it, rather than just physical abuse, um, which might not always be other forms of abuse that are not, you know, don't result in bruises and, and stuff like that. So that's always yeah. a good thing. Yeah, and I would say that that is one that my queer friends have definitely experienced far more than physical abusive relationships. Um, so it is good that that is starting to get out there just yeah. in the general sense of, hey, this is not right. Because I think it had been painted previously as like, this is how they show care for you or something. I'm trying to remember how it used to be painted, but it's been a while since I've thought about it that way. Um, but yeah, it's not that case. And I, honestly, vampires do seem to have that coercive controlling aspect to them. So it does relate very much so on that front as well. That's entirely true, right? I mean, a lot of vampire mythology includes hypnotism and of course, the draw of, you know, once a vampire has taken your blood, they then have a connection with you. And it definitely applies to a lot of the metaphors we see with abuse. But I also think it's interesting on the flip side to look at it, because I think some of these uh, supernatural traits that vampires had were used in the past to explain behavior that people wouldn't accept, either because they couldn't or wouldn't for example, queerness, right? So yeah. in Carmilla, Laura, the main girl, couldn't possibly have feelings for Carmilla. That's unnatural. She must be under a spell. And that's the same kind of thinking you see like in Dracula's Daughter and in many of things where the only reason this woman is becoming so lesbian is because she's under the spell of a vampire and her lesbianism is mixed into the supernatural. And I think it's it speaks to that danger of sexuality, but even more so a danger of a sexuality that breaks away from what the patriarchy says we need to have. We can be sexually attracted to men. We should be sexually attracted to our to our husbands. But if you're sexually attracted to a woman, then something's wrong. There's some evil at bay, some evil force that's causing this, because that is simply not natural. And I think that is um, the underlying message that a lot of 
vampire fiction had for a long time. And it can also be looked at, it was interpreted differently. So when Dracula's Daughter came out in the 30s, you're not going to, if you put on that movie, you're not going to be like, oh yeah, this is about lesbians. It's very, very subtle. But if you're in the queer community or you've done any research listening to this podcast, for example, you will see the hints. And it was like, oh, I see it. So I can only imagine what people in the 30s who saw that movie in the theater felt when, you know, because you're always looking for identity and you're always looking for representation. So I, I, I wish I could talk to someone who has saw that film and said, hey, I identify with this a little bit and see what they have to think. Because we're looking back at it through a lens of many, many years of historical analysis. But um, yeah. yeah, I think I've went off on a tangent here, but yes. Yeah, and what you say as well about that kind of, it's, um, you can only, you're only attracted to a woman if you're under this hypnotic spell. But that kind of gives a good, like, cloak as well, like, for people who wanted to explore that. Um, and it's a big part of the draw of vampires as well. It's that kind of idea of, um, oh, well, if I follow you, I can, I don't have to follow the rules that are imposed on me. Um, and I think when it's Lucy and Mina are probably originally, you know, people love to imagine those two together because you know the men in their lives are a bit shit um but they're too they they are very much the typical kind of mean as the upstanding citizen who is who's got a husband and is going to get married and lucy is flitting from one man to another until dracula kind of claims her but there is that kind of underlying relationship between the two of them as well that a lot of people have kind of drawn out from the book of how close those two are. Yeah, there's actually a fascinating part of, there's a book called Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers by Sadie Doyle, um, who just, she talks about kind of like monsters and the patriarchy and fear and how it's been reflected in horror. And there's a section on Lucy, who happens to be my favorite character from Dracula, and why Lucy's character was, quote, like punished because of she was fighting back against the patriarchy. And um, I, I think it's just really good essay. It's, it's really worth reading. And I absolutely ship Lucy and Mina. They should they should have been together, period. I would agreed. They would have <laughs> been a very probably healthy couple. Yeah. It, had it been in the modern day, they probably would have lived their lives and had like a great time with it as well and been fairly successful because they were not dumb like aristocracy types they had brains with on them as well and it feels like that is often ignored yeah in favor true. of other pieces or that's aspects. a good point especially when you compare it to some literature written i mean there's a, a wide variety of literature written at that time but the women in that book has even though there's only really two of them that make a, a statement they're they're good characters, I think, and there's a lot of um, interpretation that can be done there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I wish there was more Lucy because mm. she was just very interesting. She was the ward, correct? She the ward, or is Mina the ward? Um, were they I both think, wards? I'm trying to remember. Now my brain is like confusing things. So I think Mina was it was considered a ward, but at the time of the book, I don't know that that was that relevant. Lucy was the one who was, she had, she was with her mom. She was like very high class, very beautiful. All the men wanted her and her yes. and Mina were best friends. Okay. That's where I'm getting confused. All right. Yes. Yeah. This is what happens whenever I haven't read the book in a couple of years, I get, everything just gets muddled in my brain. I mean, there's so many good books out there. It's so hard to like, trust me. But yeah. That's and I was going to say, that's actually another topic that I, I think um, lesbian vampire genre investigates in ways that others do, and that's the closeness of women, but also girls. I think that the relationships that girls form with each other throughout their growth from young girls to women is really unique and special and complicated. And this is something that obviously has been talked about a lot, but through the lens of a queer vampire, I think, I think maybe for a long time, men didn't understand that closeness. So think about like Lucy and Mina, right? They're really close. They hold hands, they kiss each other. And that's considered like normal, like non-romantic, but how there's there's blurred lines there for a lot of people between a love for your best friend, a love for someone as more than that. And sometimes it's hard to tell because, you know, 
females, we just get so emotionally bonded to each other for one way or another. And these, I think, you know, you look at Carmilla and Laura, um, and I think that maybe some people would consider those, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is those are normal bonds. And maybe there were people in time who thought they were sinful or didn't understand. And so they were written as, well, one must be a vampire. There is also the fact that in terms of society as a whole, just like being physically close to your female friends and being touchy and things like that like that that are platonic but they kind of continue on into your adulthood with your other femme or female friends depending on how you go about things and men just typically I should say men but males signed at birth typically are not given that kind of permission to be touchy and feely so to them it's it can be perceived as something otherly for lack of a better term so that yeah. male case comes back in and just completely misconstrues everything. Not saying that happens all the time, but I have definitely witnessed good, a fair few, let's just say, of those incidents occurring. No, I 100% agree. I mean, the patriarchy is damaging to all genders, and, and we know this, but because males um, are not afforded that ability to show that love and tenderness between their friends because it doesn't fit into what society says they should be, then they're not going to view it the way we view it. And of course, there's a million different facets in this and a million different genders to acknowledge, but we're just looking, we're looking at the very, you know, basic patriarchal male versus male, uh, female thing here, but especially looking back and in time when something like Dracula or Carmilla came out when women didn't work, <laughs> like they had their best friends and like that's what all they did all day was like entertained with each other. So they weren't really exposed to people. And so these bonds probably for them were everything they had. Yeah. And I'm sure in some cases with the upper crust, they had their friends, but they had their, um, their maids, their servants that they interacted with even more. So that kind of relationship also starts blurring class lines as well. That's a very good point. Yeah. And even there's a kind even with the most famous real life vampire who, you know, misaligned for our history, Elizabeth Bathory there's that hint of that kind of upper class um, taking advantage of these young pure working class girls who were coming into her castle and they were able to use that to build a case against her mm -hmm. uh, with the claims of bathing in the blood of virgins but it's when you look at it through a queer perspective and it is that kind of class divide that fear of a woman who had a lot of power in her own right yeah i wonder if she hadn't been so powerful would she have ended up where she was because obviously we still don't know how much of her story is true right maybe she really yeah. was the most prolific serial killer in history or maybe it was all slander because the men of her area wanted to take her power take her lands we don't know that's really frustrating but if she hadn't had all that power and men weren't afraid of her because of it the story could have turned out way differently. Yeah. Yeah. And it's returning to that fear as well, especially when it's the male pen sort of lesbian vampires. It's that fear, very much a fear of female sexuality, a fear of excluding the, ma the male. Um, and vampirism is a way to reproduce mm -hmm. without pregnancy. So a, a lesbian vampire being able to transform another woman into a vampire it's just you're just cutting out the middleman. <laughs> yep, nothing takes away uh, from the patriarchy more than their like their need in reproduction, right? Yeah. And that's another thing that I think is really fascinating, especially looking at all of the like the explosion of lesbian vampire pills that happened in the '70s that we talked about. You know, all the Hammer films and everything. The women are all absolutely beautiful. Now, granted, most people yeah. in Hollywood are absolutely beautiful, but they're all beautiful through the traditional male gaze right whereas now 
as I feel like people, as publishing is starting to explode with a million different paths and a million different things, we're finally seeing things about like queer vampires where they're like, they're maybe more masked, they're more butched, they're more androgynous, they don't identify as one gender. We're finally getting representation besides just sexually attractive to the average male. And can I add on to that? The 70s and 80s also had a very white lean to it as well. So it's not only the male gaze, it is the white male gaze of what is conventionally attractive. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself is incredibly limiting whenever you think about it, because there is there are so many different types of people out there. So starting to see like... um. Even in First Kill, I believe, was that the name of that Netflix show? Yeah. Even seeing that, which regrettably got canceled, was in many ways a breath of fresh air. Because I feel like in all of the films that I've seen or all the TV shows, it typically is white and white pairings. Mm -hmm. And they are conventionally usually blonde or a brunette, very pale. So it kind of gets boring after a while, especially if you don't necessarily see yourself in that. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up because I wanted to mention one of my other favorite pieces of queer vampire literature, and that's The Gilda Stories by Jewel Gomez. Um, it was published in 1991, and it basically follows the experiences of a Black um, heroine. She's I don't know if she would call herself queer or lesbian. I don't think she identifies herself specifically, but she starts out her life as an, you know, a runaway slave in Louisiana in 1850. She's turned into a vampire. And then you read about all of these experiences she has up until present day. And then even into the future, there's a little bit of futurism in there. The people that she meets, the time periods in history, the places that she goes, and it's all told through the lens of, you know, a black woman. And it's beautiful writing, and it's just like an amazing reminder that we don't get nearly enough representation other than, you know, white vampires. Um, so for those who are listening, read Carmilla and then read The Gilda Stories, because the yeah. two of them together, chef's kiss. And it feels like with, with the female vampires, you do get a lot more of that diversity, because, I mean, it's an ongoing joke. Why is it that every male vampire is from the South and fought in the Civil War for the South? Why? Where I is... I don't like get said, it. I'm not trying to date a Confederate soldier. Yeah. Looking at you, Louis, who owned a plantation in the books. Yeah, people like to gloss over that. <laughs> they gloss over it so much. I am very glad that they updated it in the recent series, the TV series that was pretty well done all things considered but like really no lesbian vampires to be seen so far just Lestat and Louis being disasters in an abusive relationship yeah um so now that our flag means death has been shown over here and I have watched all that into the vampires the next thing that I'm basically silently begging to hurry up and make its way over here eventually you'll get it yeah, but that's Another thing about a lot of that output in the 70s and 80s with that sexual revolution, with um, the feminist, basically first wave feminism in many ways, um, first into second wave, uh, a lot of the films that we had that were readily available came from Europe. Mm -hmm. Writing was very limited, I would say, in terms of having any stakes in this genre, a lot of it would probably be underground press that we can't get our hands on today. Um, kind of like the prototype to zine culture in many ways, yeah. which is fine because zine culture is inherently very queer and very punk. So it makes sense that that would be where you would probably find these kinds of stories. But just because it is coming from Europe, you also have that very European lean to things. So you don't necessarily get a South American vibe to it. You don't get the East Asian or the South Asian vibes that could be just as interesting of a story. And it just does not happen because it is not acceptable to, not acceptable, I guess acceptable is the word, to that Western white-centric mind. Mm -hmm. That's but true. I think 
it's a hard enough sell to begin with that they're only going to sell it if it appeals to the traditional white male viewer. And that means casting a white female who is traditionally attractive. And another thing is they always have to lose. They can't win. The man always has to be the winner, with the exception of a few things. Um, some things I mentioned before, you know, evil must be destroyed. And whether that evil is vampirism or lesbianism, that's up for interpretation. Yeah, there was a movie early to the 2010s, I want to say, We Are the Night, it's German. And that mm -hmm. came so close. It, it came so close to being like a really good modern lesbian story with like a female-centric coven, female-centric um, governance process, however you want to call it. It came so close. And then they were like, oh, but the men. <laughs> The men have to come in. And I got so mad at the end because it dealt with so many pieces and then it just kind of fell apart. Mm. And I just would have liked it if the men didn't really come into that thing. And we actually had the women work through their own issues on their own without this outside guy coming in and being like, hey, surprise. So close. So, so close. close. Um, have either of you seen the film Lesbian Vampire Killers? I yeah. have, but it has been like 10 years. Yeah, when it's honest. Out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I think it goes by Vampire Killers in the US because I don't know, whatever. I think it came out in like 2009 or something. It stars a young James Corden pre-fame, but it's basically a huge satire of that explosion of incredibly overly erotic lesbian vampire films of the 70s and it's hilarious i'm obsessed with that film because there's so many nods to things whereas things would be subtle and we look at it in a lens like well this is metaphorical of men's like over women whatever this movie just puts it all out there and i love that i mean that's what satire is right um it's entertaining as well but it's just like you watch it and you're like yeah yeah that's right it's, it's a good film it's funny that you say pre-fame James Corden because at that time that was the like height of his popularity in the oh. UK. Him and the guy in it, the pair of them were in um, a TV show called Gavin and Stacey, um, which is about a girl, a guy from Essex who starts talking to a girl from Barry, which is in South Wales, down the road from me, um, and they kind of connect and start dating. But James Corden, that's kind of how he became really popular in the UK. Oh, well, I apologize for my American ignorance. <laughs> I was going to say, and then interestingly, the UK were like, oh, you know, we're fed up of you. Go on, go go to the States. Go on. <laughs> they, can, they can deal with you for a bit. But yeah, it was before, it was that weird time when he was really popular in the UK, but hadn't, mm -hmm. like that film that you said is kind of what put him in American audiences' minds as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I remember watching it with my friends. and we, Part of us were like, what is happening? And the other part was like, this is really bad but I love it mm -hmm. it's like camp to the nth degree it's meant yeah. to be camp it's meant to be bad but in a good way and like even so like the sword that's used to defeat the evil lesbian vampire queen is shaped like a penis it's like we're gonna take your metaphors and we're gonna show you what all of this means and if you're someone who really loves the genre and you can understand that it's a satire like I don't know I I, I appreciate its bluntness in that um yeah and it's a fun time if you if you like movies about people banding together to fight vampires I mean yeah. it's a good time <laughs> which if if you like those type of films as well watch um vampires versus the bronx which isn't lesbian vampires but it's excellent I don't know that I've seen that one I'm gonna write that down it is it's really fun it's kind of if you've seen attack the block yeah 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 it's almost like that but vampires in the bronx basically um, but it's that kind of same sense of communities banding together against the evil um, and the vampires. It's not really spoiling anything. The vampires are white property developers. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so it's all about gentrification as well. It's it's excellent. That just is why that's one of the reasons why I love the horror genre so much is that it allows us to explore all of these very real fears and issues going on. Um, you know, queer vampires is a very small niche of that. You know, there's race issues, there are gentrification issues, there's class issues. And 
I think that we use horror to explain or express how we feel about a lot of these. And that's why it's such an endearing genre to be in general. Yeah. And figures like the vampires endure because they can be used in, they can be used as sex symbols, they can be used as purely villains, and they can be used in a comedic way as well. Um, we actually, we went to a, Reggie knows this, we went to a steampunk burlesque night on Friday um, by the Cardiff Cabaret Club, just in case anyone's listening in the Cardiff area, definitely check them out. But one of the acts in that, um, at the end, they were doing a gothic bit and she came out and she had Dracula here and a cloak and obviously her hand, but it was made, it looked like he was coming in and like taking her clothes off and all this, but it was brilliant. It was so funny. Um, and just the way it's kind of playing with that stock character in that. And it was very, the lighting was brilliant. The dress she wears wearing was very, it was very Lucy. Um, and even the way she was looking at the audience when he was like tugging at her top and she's like, like that over, not, not great for a podcast, but that over expressions on her face um, and really playing with the tropes of the sexy vampire who comes in and hypnotizes you and stuff. And Yeah. Yeah. It really is an endearing, enduring uh, story that is told throughout time. Right. And then I love too. Carmilla is, you know, the like this, the beginning of it. And a lot of yeah. stories now have been adapted from it, whether like very loosely or or not. Um, one example I like to give is The Moth Diaries, which mm-hmm. was originally published as a book into in. Um, ooh, was it 2002, maybe? Very early 2000s, I think. Yeah, by Rachel Klein. And it's a very modern day, loose adaptation inspired by Carmilla. And it's one of those books where the main character is an unreliable narrator. You don't know if what she's seeing and believing about a potential vampire seducing her best friend is real or if maybe she's having a psychotic breakdown. But the way it's written is very ambiguous and it's a beautiful book. Um, And then they made it into a film, which is a little bit less ambiguous, I think, simply because films in general tend to be but um it's just like it takes place in a boarding school and like there's a bit the main character and her best friend also named Lucy which has to be a nod to Lucy and then the vampire maybe maybe not vampire Ernessa comes and starts to steal away her best friend and it mixes a lot of those issues of fear of burgeoning sexuality um the, the blurred lines between female friendship and romantic relationships and so it's just a really interesting modern take on on Carmilla, but also like the queer vampire story in general. Yeah. Um, yeah. One thing I, I mean, I didn't actually like the Moth Diaries movie, but when it came out, I feel like we had been in a lull of good vampire movies in general, and especially lesbian vampires. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like we just had this desert for a decade or two with regards to the genre and it could be any any number of factors that led to that a burgeoning resurgence of being conservative that conservator conservative nature it could just be that hollywood was banking on different things at the time who knows but it's interesting and also frankly kind of encouraging that we're seeing so so much more yeah right now that that could just be because of the internet promoting so much that's true that that, i think there's a lot of reasons i think you hit on some of them you know that was a weird time with this like you know at least i can only speak to america the the battle with political wills you know you have this ever-growing separation between liberals and conservatives and even the liberals aren't that liberal and that time in horror in general is considered kind of like a, a snooze time for, for horror. Um, but I think, I think you're right. That was, it's not the best movie ever, but it was like, I remember watching it and thinking, Oh, first of all, am I gay? But that's a whole nother story. Um, <laughs> but also like, yeah, I, I think, I think you're right. And that's just another example of how horror as well as this genre that we're talking about specifically really are reflective of society. You know, we start out with, lesbians vampire are vampires that are dangerous they must be killed to oh okay maybe it's just a different sexuality and it's okay 
maybe we can exist. Maybe we're not all white. And as society grows in our representation, and I love that people are self-publishing and we have TikTok to promote books and we have all these ways to show to share more stories. We're getting to share a variety of the of the stories. So I know people have a lot of like anger about social media and the digital age, but I personally think that without social media, without the internet, I wouldn't have been exposed to all of these wonderful stories and variations of stories that that I see now. Um, and so I think that it, it's a really big positive that we can take something and and help it grow. Yeah, like with anything, there's always a double-edged sword. So you can't always focus on the negative because social media does elevate voices that we would never have heard previously. Mm -hmm. um, it highlights aspects of history that have been glossed over. It promotes creators of color. It, there's a bend to everything. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's also the fact that um, Femmes, women, femmes, tend to be a lot more prolific with their writing, with their artwork. And it gives a platform for those people to promote something that other like-minded people can consume. So it kind of proves that you are not actually alone in your thoughts out there. You're not alone with these ideas, these stories. There's someone else out there and you do have an audience. Absolutely. And I can I can thank social media directly for many of these books that I found and loved. Um, there is a mod, there's a retelling of Carmilla called Carmilla and Laura by S.D. Simper that came out in 2018. That's very true to the original story, but actually has all the the lesbian stuff that is like very subtle in the original. Um, and I wouldn't have found that if it wasn't for the Internet. And I read it and I loved it. And so I'm glad I did. And, you know, hoping to take advantage of the internet for promoting my own work, because as you said, it's it's queer and it's written by a female and it's speculative. So it doesn't fall into that New York Times uh, bestseller category. But, yeah, I think that building community is. A, it's such a, it's such an important part of life and you can really build community around niche interests like lesbian vampires. Absolutely. And also, I remember, I can't remember who said it, but I remember reading an article ages and ages ago. It must have still been in high school. And someone was describing um, the shelf life of a new novel as the equivalent of how long milk has a shelf life. And mm. then social media started coming around and books that might have flopped initially are suddenly starting to gain traction. They're gaining a small but loyal following. You're starting to see a longevity to books and to authors that you would not have seen in the early 2000s or, heaven forbid, you would never have seen in the 50s or 60s. That's so true. And I mean, book talk drives me crazy, but it does promote so much. Yeah. There, are some, there are times where I'm like, I don't understand where this take is going. But then there are other times where I'm like, this sounds like a great book. This is something I should pick up. And it does add to my TBR because I don't have time to read these days. Mm -hmm. And so this, I'm just going to be drowning in books as a result of it. <laughs> I Same. I, mean, I literally found my publisher through TikTok, um, which is wild. It has become such an amazing experience for me. And I would never would have found out about this small publishing company that focus on under, focuses on underrepresented voices. If I hadn't come across this other, this woman's TikTok who has just been signed with them, who, and she and I are now friends, and we're going through this experience together of getting our first books published. And it's just, you know, obviously there's downfalls to everything, but like, what I like about social media is it allows you to find people who are like you, no matter how weird or niche or specific you're looking for. If I typed in like, lesbian vampire action adventure Egypt I probably could find something and it would probably be awesome so that's you know it allows us to explore different facets of these genres and to keep creating subgenres of subgenres and analyzing what they say about society and it just keeps the fun fun going yes and I mean Elle and I met on social media several years ago so it it does foster a community. And what I do like about it is that for the most part, if someone enters the community and it's not for them, they can also see themselves out. 
and it's no harm, no foul. And it kind of self-regulates in many ways because those who are very loyal, those who are respectful tend to stay within and promote things and keep contributing and encouraging. And those who are, I don't want to call them interlopers, but those who come with different purposes in mind quickly are pushed aside. So it's kind of almost a meritocracy, but not quite. I hesitate to use the word meritocracy because that has a lot of connotations, but it almost is a similar kind of mindset. And I, I can think of many examples, not necessarily related to vampires and lesbian vampires, but I can think of several instances that both Elle and I have encountered with that and then that I have seen on my own in other community spaces. Elle, you want to add anything to that? Um, no, I, I mean, yeah, social media is brilliant. Um, I've God knows how many books I've read because I've seen bloggers I like or just people talking about it on Twitter, um, popping up on reviews and stuff. Um, and yeah, and like you said, you can you can really find niches. You can find like little communities as well as the bigger, wider ones. Um, yeah, it is. It's a great place. And self-publishing is just it's bringing so many indie publishing, self-publishing It's all bringing like such different voices to the table. And I just wish I, I didn't have a job so I could just read full time. Yeah. Read and edit full time for L. Yeah, that's yeah. Five-year plan. Especially if you have a book that falls outside of the traditional literary fiction genre, right? Like, if I approached a major publisher was like, I have a romance between two lesbian vampires, that would likely not get published. So, you know, this awakening of of publishing and and social media has helped these genres that aren't the norm. Yeah. And that's why we've been able to see so many different types of, you know, lesbian. I used to be able to count all the lesbian vampire books and movies out there. Now there's so many I can't keep up. And I love that. I'm frustrated because I want to read and watch everything. But it's it's great because you're seeing here's one that was written by a person of color that didn't get representation before. Here's one that's written about a gender nonconforming person. And we get all of this, these different nuances and different stories. And really, at the end of the day, all we want is to be seen for who we are and to be represented because being represented and seeing representation makes us feel seen it makes us feel loved and feel okay and um i just think that that's really beautiful and bouncing off that as well do you want to tell us a bit about your book and yes yeah um, i won't take up too much time but i'll just say it's called lavender speculation it's an anthology uh, will be released in the fall 2023 by Wildling Press. And it's just a collection of short stories. Um, most of them are queer. Uh, they fall within various speculative fiction genres, be that horror, dark fantasy, some are just regular drama. Um, they're all different and they're just packaged together into a little peek into my weird brain. Um, but I'm really excited and really grateful to Wildling Press for publishing it and hopefully um, you know, by the time this podcast comes out, we might have some some links for you. But yeah, I'm really I'm I'm really excited about it. I think it's allowed me to explore a lot of those things about myself that I wouldn't necessarily be able to explore because I don't have representation for. So, and it's exciting as well that it's a collection because I think publishers they usually don't touch them. But I always love hearing about new collections coming out. I love a good short story collection. Oh yeah. I'll definitely be checking that out. Yeah, I love short stories. And that's I think that's also why so many of these vampire stories are short stories. I mean, obviously, you have Dracula, but look at Carmilla's a novella, a novella. Even the Gilda stories isn't that long. I think that I don't know why necessarily I'm, a lot of these vampire stories are shorter. I think it's just we sometimes forget that, you know, it doesn't have to. Charles Dickens novels don't have to be like the standard for length, right? Like a story can be told in a lot of different ways, whatever genre that you're in yeah and we're not all paid by the word like Charles Dickens was in a weekly format or by the line if we're going by uh oh my god who did the uh Alexander Demas that's it Alexander Demas 
yeah, I he got paid by, he the was paid by the line. Although that explains a lot. Yeah, he was paid by the line. So it, that's why you would have a line of just one word. Why not make the money? I can't blame them for it. They wanted the money. They paid the bills. It no, worked. I can't blame them. No, but, I'm but glad uh, that we have various types of storytelling now. So now whatever whatever you're into. Yeah. Yes. That you don't have to read a tale of two cities again <laughs> and again to understand good literature. And honestly, if someone tells me that that's the only style of literature out there, I'd kind of question a lot about them. Yeah, and I definitely think like we're seeing a resurgence a bit in the shorter form, but it's novellas or short stories. Um, horror and romance have, have for years had a lot of novellas and short stories on offer. So that's always always good to see it as well, especially when it's, um, yeah, for a while the short story medium was seen to be dead, but I think there is a lot of appetite for it out there. I think it was seen to be dead because so many of the big names in horror were publishing these five, six, seven hundred page monstrosities. And so that just was what people were expecting rather than, you know, something smaller. Oh, yeah, but horror is always, you've always had the horror anthologies yeah. now. Um, you always did, yeah. Magazines and stuff like that as well. Yeah. I think horror yeah. lends itself really well to short form, um, especially because the less you show, the more afraid you are, right? Like, it's like in yeah. all the monster movies. Once you see the monster fully, you're like, oh, I'm not as afraid anymore. Um, so sometimes shorter is better when you're just relying on a dread or a, the, the sense of the unknown really because the more yeah. you explain the less unknown it is i would agree with that i've seen some very very impactful short films turn into feature length films that just lose it completely they cannot stick the ending they should have just stayed that short form and then i've seen some that have expanded upon it and become very successful so it all depends on the approaches that you take but it's not to say that short films short stories are not a viable medium agreed yeah um, so before we finish then, is there anything else you want to add about lesbian vampires or any anything else? Um, I mean, I probably could talk about it forever, but it's just such, I mean, thank you for letting me talk about this topic. It sounds so niche and, and maybe when certain people hear it, they'll be like, um, oh, that's weird. But it really is to me just a reflection of society's view towards women, towards queer people and how the patriarchy has in so many ways, you know, subdued females, traditional females, traditional queer communities, but then lately how we can reclaim it. And I think that's why I really like it because it's not only a look throughout history, but it's um, a method for us to reclaim representation. And honestly, like who doesn't like a good vampire tale? No, absolutely. And I forgot the point I was gonna make then. Yeah, and vampires are just, they endure. And if, you, if you're going to be immortal, you're not going to stick to sleep in one gender. That's the truth. <laughs> yeah. Life's too long. You're certainly not going to go to high school over and over again in Washington State, but that's besides the point. Oh, my God. That sounds like hell on earth. Right? <laughs> like, nothing's, like, when I, I came out and they said that he kept going to high school, I was like, Wow. That is not me. I can't wait to get out of here. Why is it, why are the male vampires always so boring as well? And the female vampires are like not. The male vampire love interest just be like they're just brooding, moaning, stalking, and then the female lesbian vampires are just getting shit done. Oh, maybe that's a reflection on society too. Who am I to say? <laughs> now that's and topic for another day. <laughs> <laughs> so boring. That is a different topic. We can explore that later. <laughs> yeah. Okay, brilliant. Um, well, thank you very much for uh, joining us today, Jamie. And we're excited for your book coming out as well. Where can people find you on social media or websites? Or... Right, yeah, I have a website. It's jamiezachariah.com. I'm also on Instagram, TikTok, um, and I have an author page on Goodreads. 
But I also highly suggest following Wildling Press because not only is my book coming out through them, but a lot of really cool books, some fantasy, some some other stuff is going to be coming out in the next couple of years um, by underrepresented voices. And I think that a lot of people listening to this podcast would really like that. Brilliant. Awesome. Um, so yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Alter if Twitter is still around by the time this comes out. Um, <laughs> You can follow the podcast at Bookish. We're also on TikTok and YouTube now under the same name. Um, so have a look for us there. We are slowly up- uploading the episodes to YouTube once we get the transcript sorted. Um, so yeah, and Reggie? All right. So again, if Twitter's still around, um, at Reggie C. Writes. I haven't been posting that much lately because I don't know what's going on with Twitter. It's confusing me now. The algorithms seem to be broken. Um, I also scream a lot about fandom pieces and post fandom writing, fandom creations over on Tumblr at Ignatiastriga because I need a a name that is separate from my own. But if you like me screaming about, you know, interview with the vampire or um, various other pieces of fandom, you can find me on there. Well, thanks again, Jamie, and thanks everyone for listening. Bye. Thanks all. Thank you. Bye.